let's just jump right into it, uh, get going on. How many of you brought your thinking caps again today? Remember our thinking caps? <laughs> Nobody putting on their thinking cap. So today I'm going to carry on the series I began last week, Oh My God. And we've been talking about the big themes about God that just absolutely stagger the imagination. And uh, last week we looked at, oh, the heavens, and we looked at the cosmos, the universe in which God created. And it's an overwhelming presence, uh, you know, 13.67 billion light years from one side to the other, 100 billion stars in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and 100 billion galaxies that size in the universe. And I did my math wrong, someone corrected on it. It turns out it's uh, 10,000 billion trillion stars. Aren't you glad you now know that, the right number? No, we can't even comprehend that number. The, the, the spance of the universe is just so great that we have no way to comprehend it. But I did ask a question last week, and the question was this, or it was a comment, really, that if there was a beginning, if there was a singularity in which the universe came into being, then it demands, the evidence demands that there was a creator. So that's where we left last week. And, uh, you know, when you look at, here's a little secret for you about the Bible. I don't know if you know this. The Bible is not the story of God. We sometimes think that the Bible is the story of God. The Bible is actually the story of man. You can't tell the story of God. God has lived for time immemorial, infinite past, infinite future. Uh, what he has done in that period of time, or if we call it that, is uh, un, un, we have no access to it. We have no way of knowing that. He may have had many universes and many creations. We won't know until we get to heaven. And so really what the Bible is, is it's the story of God and man and the creation of man. It's interesting where it starts. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the... And the earth, it's the story of the earth, the, the home that man made, or God made for man. And so then it ends, the whole Bible ends uh, in Revelation 21, 1, it says this, and God created a new heaven and a new earth because the earth that was passed away. So the Bible, from beginning to the end, is the story of earth. And we find, I asked this question last week, I, I said this, when he said in the beginning, in the beginning of what? And you, you could say the beginning of earth, but a more accurate answer is the beginning of space and time. Because God does not exist in those realms, but, but we do. And maybe, just maybe, time is actually relative, like Einstein said. Irma Bombeck said it was relative. I don't know if you know this quote. I love this quote. She says that time hangs heavy for the bored. It eludes the busy. It flies for the young. And it runs out for the old. So I have a little story about that. So this Amish couple family, actually, they, they come into the city. They've never been to the big city before. And mama's got to get some medical treatment. So she goes into the clinic. And, and the son and the father are standing in the lobby of this high-rise uh, medical complex. And they don't know what to make of it. And they really don't know what to make of the elevator. And they see these doors opening by themselves and closing. And, and so they're standing there looking at it. And this little old lady goes in on her, her walker. And she turns around and pushes the button. And and the doors close like this. They watch as the numbers go from one to 10 and back down to one again. And then the doors open and out walks a 24-year-old bombshell blonde. And the son says, Pa, what is it? To which he says, son, I don't rightly know, but go get your ma. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't all like that joke, but that is so stinking funny. So, so, so today what I'm going to be talking about is, last week was, oh, the heavens. This week is, oh, man, oh, man. 
And we're going to be talking about how man fits into this whole universe. And throughout this series, I've been quoting uh, David's words from Psalm chapter 8, where he says this, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars, and the moon in which you've ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? So I think you can probably imagine that David was overwhelmed. He was looking at the night sky, he was overwhelmed. He would have no idea the expanse of the universe like we would, yet in some way he's feeling insignificant in the midst of this. And here's a little secret I'm gonna let you in on. The universe is one thing, and man is not the insignificant one, the universe is. You say, how, how would you, why would you say that? Because man wasn't created for the universe, the universe was created for man. And that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, so I, I, have, I have three sort of statements I'm going to make today. I'm going to throw them, two statements actually. Uh, last week I made the statement, if there was a, a, a beginning, then that demands there was a creator. This week I have two more statements. Here they are. And it's the mystery of mankind. Why do we exist and how is it we exist? And the two things are this. Number one, a finely tuned universe. And number two, evidence for intelligent design. And here's what we discover, or if you haven't discovered, you're going to today, that the universe is finely tuned for man to live in, and if any single parameter was out of order, we would not be able to live here. Now, I want to remind you about the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. We have God, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then the next verses are him creating the heaven and the earth. And he creates the stars, and he creates the moon, and he creates the sun, and he, and he said, let there be light, and there was light out of all that. And then he separated the land from the, the sky, and we have the, the firmament, as he calls it, and then he separated the water from the land, so we have dry land, and we have oceans as it was. And then he filled the earth with flora and fauna, and then he started making various creatures. Uh, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the cattle on the hills. And he made all these things. And it wasn't until the last day, the sixth day, that he made man. And, and I, I don't want to get into the conversation about how long were those days. It's not really important to me. What's important today for us is this, that man was created distinctly. Man was created separately from the rest. Man was created last on the very last day. And let's go look at it. This is what it says, 25 verses describing the creation of the universe. And then in the 26th verse of Genesis, it says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our, our likeness let him have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air over the cattle over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created them male and female he created them so we have a picture of God creating man uniquely from all the other animals. He made all the other animals, the fish and the birds and all these other things. And on that, on that sixth day, he did something that man and only man got. We and only we were created in the image of God. And he creates us in his image, male and female, he creates us. And we have the characteristics and we have the nature of God and we're gonna look at that. And then what he does is this, he sticks man in the middle of the garden, in the middle of an earth, which he put in the middle of a solar system, in the middle of a galaxy, in the middle of the universe. And the, the essence of what I'm gonna share with you today is that we were actually created after this and it was all created for us. 
So there's a book out more recently, and it's, it's, here, I'll throw it up on the screen. It's by two astrophysicists, Barnes and Lewis. They're actually Christians. They're PhDs in astrophysics. They actually teach uh, astrophysics, and they call it a fortunate uni universe, life in a finely tuned cosmos. And even though they're Christians, even though they be believe the Bible and they know all their astrophysics, this is what they've determined, that the whole universe is so finely tuned that if there was even one single parameter out of balance, we could not sustain life on Earth. And it's called, in, in technical terms, it's called the anthropic principle. How many are familiar with that term, the anthropic principle? Not that many people. And the, the creationists love it because they say that the anthropic principle is evidence that God exists because God fine-tuned the universe so that man could live in it. Now, these you know, atheistic scientists, they say, well, no, it's just a coincidence. It's a big cosmic fluke, and, and we just notice it because we happen to be living in the cosmic fluke. It takes so much faith to be an atheist, I'm telling you. But, but anyway, the anthropic principle is, <laughs> is one thing, but I, there's a better name, a simpler name for it. I call it the Goldilocks universe. How many of you remember the story of Goldilocks, the fairy tale? Go, you all remember it. You all learned it as kids, right? And of course, we have Goldilocks walking in the woods. Why is she walking in the woods by herself? That's what I want to know. Where are her parents, for goodness sakes? And anyway, she goes to the bear house, and the bears are out on a walk, letting their, their porridge cool, I guess. And so she gets in, and she sits in, in, in you know, these chairs. And the first chair is too hard. The second chair is too soft. And, and the third chair was what? Yeah, it was just right. It was just right. So she sits in that chair. And so she starts tasting the porridge. And, and one bowl was too hot and one bowl was too cold. And the, and the last one was what? What was it? Yeah, yeah, it was just right. And then after porridge, you always want to have a nap, right? And so she goes to the bedroom and there's one bed that's too hard and there's one bed that's too soft. And the third, the third one was what? What was it? Yeah, yeah, we, I was just right. And so, so she falls asleep in that bed, and of course the bears come home, and, and they do the whole, oh, you know, someone's been sitting in my chair. And of course when they get to the bedroom, little baby bear says, someone's been sleeping in my bed, and there she is right now. And I, and I don't know what, how the story ends. Like, does the bear eat Goldilocks? I, I don't actually know, because that's not how my father always told it to us. He would read us the story, and he always changed the ending. You know, so you have the chairs and you have the porridge and you have her going to the bedroom and, and one bed's too hard and one bed's too soft. And then, he, and then he took Goldilocks and he had her go upstairs and there was another bedroom and there was one third bed up in the uh, upstairs bedroom and she went to lie down in it and three little pigs jumped out from behind the dresser and said, don't you sleep in that bed, that's our bed. And Goldilocks said, you're in the wrong fairy tale. To which the three little pigs said, this is a two-story house. <laughs> that was worth it though, wasn't it? But, uh, but I'll tell you, there's something about humanity that requires the Goldilocks principle. Uh, we want everything to be just right. Would you, would you agree with that? We built the whole church around the Goldilocks principle. Did you know that? We carefully, carefully fine-tuned all the details of this church so it would be just right for you because it turns out you're a bit of a delicate flower and everything has to be just right or you won't even come to church. So, so let me ask you a question. Let me ask you about that seat you're sitting in right now. Uh, how many think that seat is too hard? How many think it's too soft? Nobody thinks it's too soft. How many think it's, it's just right? It's just right. Yeah, 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 you all think it's just right. And after the service, we're, we're going to serve you coffee. And uh, you've probably all had our coffee. How many think our coffee is too hot? Anybody? Nobody thinks it's too, anybody think it's too cold? How many think it's, it's just right? 
It's just right. It's just right. And so let me ask you about the temperature in this room. I see most of you have your jackets off. Is this room too hot? How many think this room's too hot? Not a hand. Anybody think it's too cold? A couple of hands think it's too cold. How many think it's, it's, it's just right? It's just right. See, you're a delicate flower. Like I said, if, if we don't have everything just right, if the seat isn't just right and the coffee isn't just right and the temperature isn't just right, you, you won't even come to church. And you probably don't know this, on top of this roof right here, we have the five biggest HVAC systems you will ever see in your life. They're the size of small houses. And I don't know why they had to be so big, but when we moved into this building, we had a discussion with the engineers and they said, we have this system, we have to specially design it so that it will always keep the oxygen level in the room at the just right amount. Because, uh, and they came in with these meters and they measured it. They said, see what happens when you fill this room with people, they exhale carbon dioxide. And if we don't put in this system, the carbon dioxide level's gonna get too high and it was gonna cost us tens of thousands of dollars for this system. So I said, well, well so what? What if, what if the carbon dioxide gets a little high? He said, he said the people will fall asleep during your sermon. I said, then let's pay the money and get the system. <laughs> we, need, we, need, we need it to be just right. And so, so we never think about this, but we like life just right. It has to be just right. And God knew that. God knew what you were like. And so when he built this universe, he built it just right. And if you go read about the Anthropic Principle or the Goldilocks universe, you discover that there's at least 30 parameters, and there's probably more, but there's at least 30 super important parameters, things you know about, that if they weren't in the absolute delicate balance, if they were off even one smallest degree, it wouldn't sustain life. And I'm gonna show it to you on a graph just to help you on this. And so here, here's a bunch of different parameters. Uh, for example, there's only one spot where, where it will actually sustain life. And if the universe expanded too fast, we would end up in thermal death, too slow, and we ended up in the big crunch. Uh, the distance from the sun, if we were any closer or further from the sun, we wouldn't be able to live here. You see, it's actually too cold on Mars, it's too warm on Venus. Gravity, um, electromagnetism, ozone, all of these things are in perfect balance. You know, have you ever thought about gravity? I mean, we take gravity for granted, but it's in the perfect balance for us to live life on this planet. If gravity was, let's say, too, too weak, you know what would happen every morning when you jumped out of bed? You would hit the ceiling. Every morning you would hit your head. And so the whole universe is held together in this incredible, delicate balance where it will sustain life. And there's, this can't be an accident. Uh, the, the, even the scientists, they do the math on these things, and they're so extraordinary and so elaborate, the calculations, and they think if it was off even 1% of a degree, we couldn't have life on the planet. And that's because when we read the story, which we just did, God created the earth first, and then it made it just right, and he put us in the midst of it. That's the anthropic principle. And I don't want you to, it to escape your notice that when God put man in the midst of this planet, he gave man dominion over everything else. We were the last creator. We and only we are created the image of God. And we are so vastly superior to all the other species on the planet. We are the only ones that can think abstractly. We're the only ones with this level of creativity. We're the only ones with these complex emotions. We're the only ones that are able to maintain these elaborate relationships. Why? Because we and only we are created in the image of God. 
You know, there are different stories of creation. I'll tell you this one, you tell me if you think it's right. So, so apparently, you know, God created the dog first. And when he created the dog, he said, here's what I want you to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the porch, and your life is you're going to sit on the porch, and you're going to bark at everybody that walks by. And for this, I'm going to give you 10 years, or 20 years, rather. And the dog said, 20 years? That's too long. How about you give me 10 years to do that, and I'll give you the other 10 back. So God agreed. And then he made the monkey, and he said to the monkey, I want you to do monkey tricks and entertain the kids. And for this, I'm going to give you 20 years. And the monkey said, that's too long to do monkey tricks. How about you give me 10 years, and I'll give you the other 10 back? And then he made the cow and he said, this is your job. You have to go toil in the heat of the day in the field so that you can feed the farmer and his family. For this, I'm going to give you 50 years. And the cow, you said, you kidding me? 50 years toiling in the heat of the day in the field? How about you give me 10 and I'll give you the other 40 back? So, so God said, okay. So then he made man, finally. And when he made man, he says, here's what your job is. Your job is to eat, drink, marry, sleep, and enjoy life. And for this, I'm going to give you 20 years. And man said, 20 years, only 20 years, I'd like a lot more than that. And he said, well, I do have some spare years that the other animals gave you back, and so I could give you those years. And so that's why we spend the first 20 years of our life eating, drinking, being married, and enjoying ourselves. But the next 40 years we spend toiling in the field to feed our family. And then we spend 10 years doing monkey tricks to entertain the children, and the last 10 years sitting on the porch barking at everybody that comes by. <laughs> And that, my friend, is a true story. <laughs> so, so the first thing we discover is that the universe is finely tuned to support biological life. But the second question is, is there evidence, is there evidence of intelligent design? And I think, I think the explanation as to why there's life on planet Earth is so woefully inadequate, I think scientists should be embarrassed by it. And see, here's, see, it's one thing. Supposing you believe that the universe is infinite and it's always been here. Supposing you believe that nothing created the universe. Okay, fine. Where did life come from? And there is no explanation for where life came from. And they say, well, I know, because you can't explain it. Life cannot arise from inorganic or in, in, inanimate objects. It's just not possible. The material universe cannot produce life as we know it. So they say, well, I know, it's sort of a fluke. There was this, you know, this chemical soup on the earth, and there was this chemical fluke that happened, and somehow a simple-celled organism developed and lived in the primordial ooze. And after living in the primordial ooze, it got tired of living in the ooze and crawled out on its belly onto the land. And then it got tired of crawling on its belly, so it grew legs, and it started to walk on all fours. And then it didn't really like walking around on all fours, so it started, it got up, and it started to be able to walk on two. And then it got tired of walking on uh, completely, entirely, and went out to the dealership and bought a brand new Camaro, so it wouldn't have to walk anymore. And so that's, that's, this, that's the story of evolution. And it, it's so incredibly ridiculous. Like I said, it takes so much faith to believe that. And so I want to tell you a little story about uh, Frederick Hoyle, uh, Sir Frederick Hoyle, and he was one of the great astrophysicists of the 20th century, and he was actually the one who coined the term Big Bang, and like I told you last week, it was a derisive comment. He was talking about George Lemaitre's uh, idea that the whole universe came from a singular moment and burst into being and is expanding, ever expanding into the outer expanses of the universe, and he, he didn't want to believe it. 
Because if the universe had a beginning, then it demands that there was a creator, and so it becomes problematic for the evolutionists. Nevertheless, he finally came around, even though he coined the, the term Big Bang, he finally came around and he actually believed it. But then he had a problem and he, re and he realized that science cannot explain how life emerged, the origin of life on the earth. And so he wrote a book on it, here's this book, he died in, in 2001, and the book is called The Intelligent Universe, a new view of creation and evolution. Now make no mistake about it, he's not a creationist. He, is an, he was an evolutionist, he was an atheist, he did not believe in God, he did not think God had any part of this. But he couldn't explain how life had emerged from an inorganic universe. So, so this is what he comes up with, you're gonna laugh. He came up with the term panspermia. And what that means is that because the inanimate universe could not have created life, then that probably meant that aliens from another galaxy came to Earth and planted a seed of life, and that's how it all began. I think this guy's been watching way too much Ancient Aliens on the History Channel. Did any of you ever watch that show? I love that show. Those guys are nuts. They, they think that the, you know, the aliens built Stonehenge and the pyramids and everything else that goes on. And he comes up with this harebrained idea that, oh, aliens did it. Aliens sowed life into the earth. Now here's my question. Okay, supposing that's true. So where did their life come from? Where did the alien life come from? It still doesn't answer the question, right? But having said that, uh, Sir, Sir Fred Hoyle came up with a very interesting comment, and I want to throw it up to you. Here it is. This is what he said. He said, the chance of higher life forms might have emerged through evolutionary processes is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard might assemble a Boeing 747 from the material within. Even he understood that life, and particularly higher forms of life, could not have emerged from nothing. There has to be a reason. And science has no proper explanation for this, and we have the best explanation ever. Because we, it says that God created man in his image, and then in the next chapter, chapter two of Genesis, it explains it. And it says, and, and God took, uh, uh, and he made man, who, what did he make man from, who can tell me? What, what do you make man from? Yeah the, the, yeah, the dust of the dust of the earth. He made man out of dirt. Women, that explains everything about your husband, everything you need to know. And, and so he made man out of the dirt. And so it's true that mankind, our physical body, is made out of the elements of this world. We know that when we die, it's dust to dust, ashes to ashes, and our body just goes back to the elements of the earth from which it came. But that's not the end of the story. It says he made man, he formed man of the dust of the earth. And what is the very next line? and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. You see, man only came into being after God breathed his life in, because God created man in the image of man. He created them, male and female. You see, that's how we came into this world. And any other, any other explanation just doesn't work. You know, I know, that, I know there's Christians that, that believe in evolution. I'm not one of them. I don't have that kind of faith. Have you ever seen, I know you've seen this, have you ever seen the human family tree? You ever seen it? I'm not talking about your family tree, I'm talking about the human family tree. I'm gonna show it to you, here it is. So here's our relatives, and uh, we have the orangutans, and we have the gorillas, and we have the bonobos, and we have the chimpanzees, our closest relative. And then we have us. 
And yet we are so distinct. I'm, I'm telling you, all you have to do is look at that picture and you go, I don't, I don't know, I don't really see the family resemblance with, with the rest of the family. There's something missing here, and what do they call that thing missing? The, the missing link, they call it the missing link. And you know what the missing link is? It's the transitional forms, the intermediary uh, form. They are the forms that exist between monkey and man or, or any of the other species. And here's the problem. They have not been able to locate the missing links. They cannot find the transitional forms between the lower species. See, see, even if we did come from a chimpanzee, would there not be some sort of transitional form between the chimpanzee and us? Th there has to be. And, and so here, here's, one, here's one scientist. This is, I'm gonna share, I'm gonna mock him. I'm gonna share his explanation. This is the illustration he used. Here it is, throw it up, it's cutlery. He says, okay, so, you know, if you have cutlery, if you have a, a knife and a spoon and a couple of forks, uh, there's, no, there's no transitional for, form between the spoon and the fork, but we can all imagine that it's just a small leap from a spoon to a fork. I, I don't actually agree that. There is a transitional form. You ready? You want to see it? Here it is, here's the transitional form. It's the spork. Somebody already, somebody already said it's the spork. Would you believe I did this artwork myself on Photoshop? <laughs> yes, everybody's nodding. Yes, that does look like your handiwork, Pastor Mark, way to go. Yeah, I had to come up with that spork so, so people would understand it. And not only would there be a spork, but there would actually be a whole bunch of variations, little iterations along the way. Why do those not exist? Why is it? I'll tell you why they don't exist. Because we didn't evolve from a monkey, that's why. It, it's like this story of this, this little girl, she goes to her mom and she says, you know, mom, where did we come from? So her mother sits her down, tells her the whole story of Adam and Eve and the whole thing, God's creation. And then she says, that's not what daddy told me. I asked daddy the same question. And he said, we evolved from monkeys. To which she said, look, your dad's telling you about his side of the family, I'm telling you about mine. <laughs> If you need one piece of evidence that refutes everything they say about human evolution or animal evolution or the origin of species, all you have to do is look no further than Australia and the duck-billed platypus. Have you seen the duck-billed platypus? You've seen it on TV if you haven't seen one in real life. They are such an unusual animal. It has the bill of a duck, it's got the tail of a beaver, it's got the hind feet, the web feet of an otter, it's got the body of who knows what, it's got claws that can actually dig on the front. It's actually a mammal that lays eggs and suckles its young, yet it doesn't have teats, and the milk is extruded somehow through the fur, and here's the icing on the cake, and it has venom like a snake. Did you know that? There is, they call it an evo evolutionarily distinct. You know what that means? We have no explanation for this whatsoever. We don't know how, uh, you know what it is? This is God's little joke on them. And God says, I'm going to give you an animal you will not be able to explain. There's no way and no form and no other animals that you can link this to because he took a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of this and he, went, <laughs> he giggled and he said, this will mess them up for centuries. But I have one more thing I want to share with you that, that I think is the icing on the cake for all of this. And it's this, that, that we are created with a genetic code that is so complex that it screams intelligent design. 
And we, of course, know this. What, you, what I'm talking about is about the human DNA, or as you probably call it, the deoxyribonucleic acids. And, but I'll just go with DNA, because uh, I can't pronounce that long word. And so, and so we know what DNA is, or we have a bit of an idea about it. It, it was you know, first discovered years ago. But what happened in 1990, they, they came up with the Human Genome Project. And they spent 13 years from 1990 to 2003, and they were able to unlock the code, the human code, and that's what it is, a code, and I'll explain that to you in a moment, uh, of what makes us human and what makes us each uh, distinct as human beings. And uh, this is what they discovered. Let me show you the picture of it. It'll probably be easier. And so every cell in the human body has, a little, has little crystals on it. They're microscopic crystals. And they are this double helix. And uh, they're made up. You see those little bars between the two helixes. And it's sort of a complicated thing. If you go to the next slide there, this breaks it down a little bit. And uh, if you could unroll the, the helix, if you could unroll the DNA, you'd realize that there's these base pairs. And between the two helixes, there's what they call a base pair. And it's a, a, a pair of, of two elements. And the two elements if you, are, are this. Uh, they are what they call nucleotides. You remember last week, I, I pretended to be an astrophysicist. Well, today, I'm pretending to be a biological geneticist. So, so just so you know, I'm pretending here. Uh, but anyway, there's, there's these four letters, and they're T, A, C, and G, and they represent each of these nucleotides, and, and we have 3.1 billion of these base pairs in every human cell, 3.1 billion. And what they were able to do with the Human, human Genome Project was they were able to unroll this, and they were able to actually use computers. You couldn't do it manually. It's physically impossible. And they were able to map the entire human genome. And, and so on a computer screen, it looks like this. And there would be uh, 6.2 billion of those characters for every human being. And just like a computer coder will use a binary system of, of ones and zeros, and, and it just looks like ones and zeros to you, but to them, they understand that there is a code behind this, a, a digital code. And it turns out that every human being has a digital code. But instead of ones and zeros, you're T, A, C, and Gs. Now, I know I'm, I may have lost some of you, but I've got a real simple explanation for this. So I love TED Talks. I don't know if you know that. Uh, you can learn more in 16 minutes than probably anywhere else on the internet. And uh, there was a great one I saw recently. And this guy was an Italian scientist by the name of Riccardo Sabatini. And uh, he had a heavy Italian accent. And he was a data scientist. So he's not a geneticist, and he's not a biologist or an astrophysicist. But what he does is he does a meta-analysis on data and large data. And he did this great thing on the human genome. So he comes out on stage. And while he's on stage talking about who we are as human beings, he brought out these volumes. And these volumes are, are, are act an actual specific human being where instead of being on a computer screen, they printed out that person's DNA the entire code. And there's 475 uh, kilograms of books there. There's 262,000 pages. And then what he did, he said, this is a, a, a real person, a specific person. It's the only time in history that we've actually printed it out in hard copy. And he wanted people to see this and visualize this. So then he went over and he reached into that pile. And he didn't take this book out randomly, but he pulled this book out. And, uh, and then he opened up the book to a place that he had earmarked. And in that place, if you look at it, you can't really see it, but if you look on that, 
on that book, it's just hundreds of thousands and millions of letters of, of T, A, C, and G. Just one after one after another, one after another. And each, each one of these sequences is a certain way that determines certain factors about each and every one of us. So he, start, he goes to this particular place and he starts reading and he reads A-T-T-C-T-T-G-A-T-T-T. And then he stops and he looks at the audience and he says this. He says, given where this is in this person's uh, DNA, if they had just two of these letters out of order, this person would have cystic fibrosis, an incurable genetic disease, because two letters were out of order. And so now you're starting to get a little picture. There's 3.1 billion of these combinations. A computer genetic, or, or, or it's not computer, but a, a genetic code that has been imprinted that determines everything about you. It determines the color of your eyes and the color of your skin, and it determines your height and a whole bunch of other factors, and who you are is based on this code that God printed on your very cells from the very beginning. And then he said this comment, which I loved. He said, so next time you see a pregnant woman, you are looking at a living 3D printer that is putting together the greatest amount of information known to mankind. And that, my friends, is the miracle of life. And the people applauded. They started to applaud. Because I think they were overwhelmed by this. That this is so intricate and so specific and so overwhelming that I don't know whether he believes in God or not, but the, but the fact is, how can you not believe in God when you're looking at that? And so it reminded me of something I shared with you a couple months ago. Kathy and I were watching this, this movie called What is a Woman? And at the end of the movie, I said to Kathy, I said, so what makes you a woman? And she says, my superpower makes me a woman. I said, what's your superpower? She says, women are the only gender that can create life. And then, I didn't tell you this part, and then she said, and that's why no woman should ever get an abortion, because we are giving up our superpower. You know, there's a big debate today about when does life begin? What, what is the moment life begins? Some people think it's at birth. Some people think it's the first trimester or the second trimester. Some people say, well, it's when the, the, the fetus has a heartbeat or when the fetus has brain waves or maybe when it has fingerprints. But we actually know when life begins because it's at the moment of conception because when the, the egg is fertilized, it becomes what is known as a zygote. And the zygote has the complete code, the complete genetic code of 3.1 billion base pairs of exactly who that human being is. And this is what it tells us in the, in the book of, of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter one. Uh, throw it up. It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. See, God says, I have already printed out your genetic code. And don't think for a moment that you're coming into this world when you were born. I knew you before you were even formed in the womb because I printed out your genetic code of exactly who you would be. And that, my friend, is why we know that life begins at conception, because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So I have all these news channels. I have 20, I have this app on my, my, my TV, it gives me 20 news channels, and they're all listed together, and I can watch one news show after another. Kathy hates it. She says, you don't want to know what's on TV, you want to know what 
else is on TV. And it's sort of true. And anyway, I'm going through one day and I saw this piece and I stopped on it. It was so fascinating because it was about this group of people that called themselves Abortion Survivors Network. And never mind, you know, you can say what you want about Fox News, but I'll tell you, they're the only people that would even cover a story like this. So here was the story. There was these three people. Here's the picture of them. And uh, the first one's name, her name was Melissa. And the guy in the middle, his name was Josiah. And the last one, her name was Claire. And they started to tell their stories because they all survived abortion. And here they are to tell a story. And so, so Melissa tells her story, and she said that her mother uh, aborted her with a saline solution, and that when the abortion happened and she came out of the womb, the, the doctor said the abortion was successful, and off went the, the, the birth mother, but the baby didn't die. Melissa didn't die. And so then uh, what happened, she was adopted by this family and raised by this family. And then Josiah in the middle, he was actually born in Korea, and uh, he was uh, aborted or attempted to be aborted with a suction tube abortion, and they stuck a suction tube in there and tried to suck him out and uh, ended up ripping his arm off. So he has no, no arm, he's missing an arm. And uh, what happened though was it didn't kill him and he managed to come out and he managed again to survive and he got adopted by an, an American couple and ended up uh, in a Christian home actually, uh, a worship pastor who had adopted 12 kids and I uh, was raising all these adopted kids and they didn't care what they looked like or what had happened to them, especially as an abortion survivor. And Claire, Claire the last one, her story is even crazier. Her, her mother was 13 years old when she got pregnant. And uh, the, little girl, the little young girl's mom dragged her into the clinic and they were gonna abort this baby and they did and they told her that the abortion was successful. Two months later, they find that she's still pregnant. And, and they say, how can you still be pregnant? And they looked into it and they realized that she was pregnant with twins and they aborted one twin and missed the second twin. But they had damaged the second twin. And when Claire was born, she had dislocated hips and she had cleft feet and she spent two years of her infant life uh, in a body cast to correct this. And then what happened is, as these kids, these three kids in separate worlds uh, became teenagers, all of their, their adopted parents told them that they were actually adopted and they were, they were subjects of abortion. And so all three of them, as it turns out, were brought up in Christian homes. And all three of them went back and looked for their birth parents. And all three of them found their birth parents and because of their Christian upbringing, were able to forgive their parents and to be able to say, you did not know what you were doing. And some of them have a very, very good relationship with their families today. And so when people tell me this, when people look at this and say, you know, my body, my choice, I say, no, it's not your body. There's another body in there with an absolutely intact DNA that has been prescribed from the beginning of time that God knew them before they were formed in the womb. And I want you to look at those pictures one more time. Do those look like blobs of tissue to you? Or do those look like God's creation in the apple of his eye? Absolutely, no doubt. So, so I'm just gonna wrap this up. I, I need to get, wrap this up. And uh, so I wanna tell you about Francis Collins. And some of you, you don't recognize that name. He should be a household name because we all know who Anthony Fauci, Dr. Anthony Fauci was, and you know, Dr. Pandemic. And uh, his boss was Francis Collins. And he was actually the head of the NIH and, and Dr. Fauci worked for Francis Collins. And he's an important figure in our world because he was the one who oversaw the Human Genome Project. 
And so he spent uh, those 13 years overseeing with a bunch of scientists. They unlocked the human code, as I just told you, all about the human DNA. And then as soon as he finished that, they finished ahead of schedule and, 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 and under budget. And then what he did was he sat down and he wrote a book. And this is Francis Collins' book. It's called The Language of God, talking about the DNA. He says, a scientist presents evidence for belief. And his story is fascinating because he, he tells in his book this story about how in the 70s he was a medical student and he was an avowed atheist. He loved science, he believed in evolution, he believed all the things that, that the scientists of his day believed. And he graduates from medical school, he ends up in, in practice, and then he said, all of a sudden I'm face to face with real life problems. And I'm face to face with life and death. And people asked, started asking me hard questions that I couldn't answer, like when they were facing the death of a loved one, and they would say, so where do we go when, he die, when we die? And he said, I don't know. And they said, but, but what do you believe? And he thought to himself, I don't know what I believe. And he didn't have an answer. He said the science he loved so much was inadequate to help these people in their greatest times of need. And then he said he looked at other patients that he had that were facing unbearable situations. And somehow, in some way, they had this incredible hope that seemed to come from their faith in Christ. And then he became conflicted and he started asking himself these questions. You know, where did we come from? Why are we here? Why does man exist? Where do we go when we die? Why does mathematics work? Why is the universe so finely tuned? So he needed some help. So he had a patient that was a Methodist pastor. And he went to this pastor and he told him his conundrum. And he told them what he was wrestling with. And the pastor looked at him and says, you remind me of another intellect years ago by the name of C.S. Lewis. And he wrote a book, I think I'll help you, and the, the book is called Mere Christianity. And he gave him the book Mere Christianity, and he was enthralled by it, and it started to answer some of the, the difficult questions. And then he devoured all of C.S. Lewis's writings. And after he had read them all, he sat down, and he thought to myself, I don't want to become a Christian. It's not what I want to be. It's not what I want to do. But I am overwhelmed by the evidence. I have no choice but to give my life to Christ. And he became a Christian. And then he said, here was the one argument that got me. He says, the one argument is, Lewis says this, if you see a man drowning in a river, and even if you're a poor swimmer, you will risk your life, and you will jump into that river to save that man. And he said, I asked myself, why? He says, evolution would teach the opposite. Don't go after that man. He's the weaker of the species. He will perish. You have to protect your DNA. But I jump into the river. Why do I do it? Because to protect myself and only myself is not what is written in my heart because we are created in the image of God. And we will have the love of God and the sacrificial love for other human beings because we and only we are created in the image of God. This is because because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He made all of the heavens and he stuck us in the midst of it. And man, oh man, that's the God I serve. Let's stand together. All right, I knew that was a mouthful. But I hope you got something out of that. And I want to ask you to do a favor for me. I'm wondering if you could all bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. Because I know there'll be people in the room here like Francis Collins and like Frederick Hoyle and like all these other people I've talked about. And you have never come to that place where you've made that decision to be a follower of Christ. And maybe you've got a little bit more information today on that. 
But if you're here today and you've never made that decision to invite Jesus into your life to be your Lord and Savior, I want to give you an opportunity today. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed and nobody's looking around and I'm not going to single you out. But if that's you today and you'd like to make a decision to be a follower of Christ, I want you to slip up your hand so I can see it. It's just between you and me and Jesus. I will not call you forward. If you're here today, thank you in the middle. Anybody else, thank you on the side. Just take a moment and let me see your hands. Thank you in the back for you group of folks. Thank you on that side. Thank you. All right. Hands all over the room today, which is fantastic. You can all put down your hands. I, I may not have seen all your hands, or if you didn't put up your hand, then you should have. Would you pray with us? And we're all going to pray together because I said I wouldn't single anybody out. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the work of the cross. That your Father made this great heavens, this great universe. And he stuck me in the middle of it because he loved me. And I strayed far from you. I've been doing my own thing, walking in my own way. But that changes today because you died on the cross for my sins. You rose again on the third day. And you forever live to be my Lord. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Today I'm a new creation in Christ. Today I'm a Christian. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout, shall we?